Okay, we are learning chapter 20 of Tanya. And the last thing we learned is, right, before we get to the last thing, the issue that we want to come to understand is how Hashem remains alone to the exact same degree after He creates the world as He was before the world was created. And the explanation to that is if the creation of the world counts for nothing, right, the addition of nothing does not change your aloneness. And how are we to understand the absolute non-relevance or non-significance of the world vis-a-vis Hashem? Well, that's because the world comes into existence by virtue of Hashem's speech, His words, and therefore they cannot be, the world cannot be more valuable than Hashem's words. And so if the words are utterly insignificant, it follows that the world is utterly insignificant. Or, as one of you put it so nicely, if the words are, count for nothing, then the world is less than nothing. Because they're receiving from the nothing. And so we had an explanation of how the words of Hashem count for nothing. Does anyone remember what that explanation was? So you have no effort to say it? Yeah, because it takes no effort. Because it takes no effort. You do it. Okay, so it, the no effort is not actually what's said here. And um, you could be using the no effort as a stand-in for the, the, that you can produce words infinitely. Right? The idea is that it, it costs nothing. That's what you mean by effort. There's many things I would say are effortless, but at the end of the day, there's only a limited amount you can do. Right? The soul's ability to produce words is infinite, so it costs the soul nothing to produce a word. Now, the key thing here is that we're comparing the word to the source of the word, the faculty of speech, what he calls the middle garment, right? And the way I explained it at the last class was that, is it correct to say that the word counts for nothing compared to one's faculty of speech? Or does it only count for nothing in a certain point of view, from a certain perspective? Okay, so why, why do you have to say that it does count in some sense? Because if something's function is to produce words, if there's no word produced, Right, exactly. Right, right. So in terms of the, the, the faculty of speech, what it is, its fulfillment is in the production of words. But any particular word is meaningless because you could just as easily produce another word. Right. Um, I, will, I will contrast this with children. Okay? Children are valuable. Um, normal human beings don't say, well, if it doesn't work out with this child, they can just have another one, right? right? That, that's generally not, right? But does the faculty of speech have that relationship with the words? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't cost the faculty. Oh, so the, those weren't the right words? Okay, so use different words. <laughs> so the, in business, they have this concept called the sunk cost fallacy, which is you invested in something, so you should keep investing. You don't, so you don't want to just move on because you, you put something into it, right? So you want to you want to recover your loss. Now, sometimes the thing is, it's just it's 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 doomed, right? So the more you put into it to save it, you're just going to lose more in the end. But in speech, we don't have that, right? And the example I gave you last class was that we often restart our sentences in the middle without thinking because something just makes us realize that that wasn't the right way to say something, that wasn't the right approach, and we start again in the middle, and it's like, well, well, you already said those words, so it doesn't matter. Good? Okay. 
We also discussed how this analogy is what's called a mushal mechuvan, a precise analogy, and that every aspect corresponds to the way it is in the spiritual worlds. That we are talking about the significance of Hashem's words in comparison to Hashem as He presents and reveals Himself through the spheres. And there are higher spheres and lower spheres. Does anyone remember the basic distinction between spheres at the top of the sphere chart versus spheres at the bottom of the sphere chart? Yeah. What's the difference? Spheres in the bottom of the chart is Hashem's more involvement in the world, and spheres at the top is the aspects of Hashem that's most removed from the world in creation. Okay. Now say that in the reverse. First, it's up in the bottom? No. In other words, I don't care what direction you start, but now I want you... You put both of them in terms of the world. In other words, the more the sphere is on the bottom of the chart, the more world it, the more world is part of the issue. And the more it's at the top of the chart, the less the world is part of the issue, part of what's relevant. Right, so the reverse is more God. You go higher up, more God, right? So the sphere of Kesser is like all about God, not about the world. The sphere of Malchus is all about the world. And it's about God, but... You know, it's as, 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 as much you can make it about the world and still have it be about God, right? And what that, in a human being, this thing that has that quality is speech, right? Because what is speech? Speech is the way you, remember I said there are three garments, what is speech? Express yourself. No. Bringing others closer to you. Bring others, right? Getting others to understand you. This is, I'm going to make a little detour as I often do. The idea that speech is about expressing yourself is a poisonous idea. It is a very poisonous idea. Because what does that mean that I now do with my mouth? I say things on the basis of how it makes who feel. I've taken the thing that allows me to put myself aside and... And, and, and recognize that someone else's mind is genuinely significant and try to make things understandable, relevant, heard, felt to that other person's mind. Whether I like them or not, it could be a negative thing, right? I gave you the example of like you're insulting someone. If you're insulting someone because you really want to hurt their feelings, you still have to make sure that the insult lands, lands as an insult, right? It's always bad you're trying to insult somebody because you really want to make them, you really want to cause them misery and then they take it as a compliment, right? It's also failed speech. Um, speech is that not is that that person's mind sets the parameters of how I'm going to present this. How the words I say make me feel. I'm a teacher. One of the things that I've noticed is that words that I like are not necessarily the words that work best for the students. Now, sometimes the words that I like are actually more useful, and so you have to bring the students to understand those words because then it actually makes things work smoother. But at the end of the day, even then, the initial word choice to explain those words is going to have to be words that make sense to the student, right? So if I come to class, and I decide I'm speaking in English, I'm not going to speak in like Hebrew or anything, but I'm going to use a kind of vocabulary that I feel really expresses the ideas as I understand them. Yeah. It, it, it completely undermines why God gave us the power of speech, right? And if you go one step further, this is like not related to like the actual subject matter we're dealing with per se, but I think it's very important in life. We have many mechanisms in our life which allow us to compensate for the limitations of our speech. We have phones, we have books, 
We have, you know, television. We have all sorts of mediums that we use to try and extend the notion of speech beyond, right, what God just gave us as a kind of natural ability, right? So let's take that a step further. Again, if you put something online because you putting it up there makes you feel good, right, then what are you doing? It's, it's, right, you're, right, you're, you're corrupting. Now, what is it that binds people together in society and actually makes people function as cohesive society? Our ability to talk, our ability to speak to each other, to work out our problems, right? Mm-hmm. So now, if we take all of our means of communication and we turn them from, from speech to expression, what are we doing? We're atomizing ourselves. Right? Instead of the things that come out of my mouth and the things that are posted on my, I don't know what it's called, Instagram or Twitter, are about, are about creating links that are constructive. It's about you know, creating, a, creating a, this space where in my space, everything fits with me. And you can understand how that is very bad. It's very bad within a family. It's very bad within a community. It's very bad in society at large. As I've seen, it's a very poisonous idea to think of speech that way. Okay? Which leads to another thing. What is the Torah's view about speech? Should we, uh, should we prefer silence or prefer speech, all things being equal? I think all things being equal. Silence, why? Okay, silence. Is, speech is creative. Speech like, is creative. Speech is like, speech is actually make will impact and if you misuse it it's also going to have a bad impact right so, so there, there's a view that silence is the preferred state there's different reasons one difference one reason is when silence is a, is, is, is a guard for wisdom um, the idea that we cultivate wisdom we cultivate depth requires that we have some kind of introspection which silence is necessary for okay but there's another idea something can only be purposeful when the status quo is not to do it in other words, like this. Um, there's a phenomenon that many men have, which is, uh, I just noticed about men, and I know that my wife finds it annoying, and all my friends' wives find it annoying, as they tell me, which is that a man will come into the kitchen and he'll open the refrigerator. And then he'll look and look and look and close the refrigerator. And five minutes later, he'll come back in and comes and opens the refrigerator. Why is he opening the refrigerator? Because he forgot. Because that's just what he does. It's not purposeful. It's just like a bad habit to just like open the refrigerator and then see if there's anything to eat. And if there's nothing to eat, then five minutes later you go back. Maybe there's now there's something to eat. It's not a purposeful behavior. A purposeful opening of the refrigerator would be what? That you're not going to open the refrigerator unless you have an objective you're trying to fulfill, right? See, that's what purposeful means. I don't do the thing unless... There's an objective that I'm trying to accomplish, right? So if my speech is supposed to be purposeful, then what does my kind of um, starting point have to be regarding opening my mouth and saying things or posting things? But you have a point. And therefore, if I, unless I have a point, unless I, or unless it's clear what I'm trying to accomplish, you don't say anything. I don't say anything. So I have to cultivate a kind of bias towards silence in order for speech to be purposeful. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's a whole idea about having a filter. Having a filter, I would say, is a step after that. It's like, once I have a purpose, then maybe I should reconsider before I actually, like, you know. But I'm saying, just, 
do you even have an objective? A lot of times, you know, that usually like. I was like, what are you doing with the fridge? And I, like, and I was like, I don't know, actually. I just like went to the kitchen and like it, it just gravitated to the fridge and opened it. Like, you know, like, like some sort of insect is drawn to the light. It's not a purposeful thing. Right? And if that's how our, our mouths produce words and that's how, you know, things end up on our social media and stuff, it, it, there's no way it's ever going to be purposeful. Right? Or the way it's put in, uh, Shomach puts it in, in, in Mishlei, there's a time to be silent, there's a time to speak. And you need the fact there's a time to be silent so that there can be a time to speak. Purposeful things have to be the non-status quo. Make sense? Yeah, there's a little parenthetical life advice. Okay, now we'll back to the time. <laughs> okay. Um, so... What we're now going to do is we're going to move and we're going to compare the words, compare the words of Hashem to a higher level, but we're going to do that in the analogy. So we're now going to compare the human spoken word to not their faculty of speech, the middle garment, but we're going to compare it one step up. So we are on, onto thought, right. Um, we are, um, where you see this is footnote, there's a footnote 15. So right after that. All the more so when it is compared to its, to its so-called innermost garment, namely the faculty of thought, which is the source of speech and its life force. Okay. A spoken word counts for nothing, both in comparison to the faculty of speech and in comparison with the faculty of thought. Correct? That's what it says. Where does it count for nothing more? Where is it more insignificant? To speech or to thought? Thought. To thought. Okay. Why? Because it doesn't doesn't really express the thought. Do you see that in the text? Wouldn't it be more the power of speech? Nope. The text says all the more so to the faculty of thought, right? So it's more, it, it's more nothing when compared to thought than it what's, is. What, what's it? It is the spoken word, right? The, we're always, like, the spoken word is our stand-in for the word of Hashem. So you have a spoken word. That spoken word counts for nothing compared to the faculty of speech. That's what we did last class and I just we reviewed now. And it says all the more so when compared to the so-called inner garment, the faculty of thought. So where does it count for more nothing, <laughs> even less? Thought. thought. Why? Why? Because it's very good, right? When it says that speech is the source and life force, sorry, when, when thought is the source and life force of the speech, that is the explanation for why the spoken word is even more nothing in comparison to thought than it is to the faculty of speech. So we have to understand what is the faculty of thought, and we also have to understand in what sense the faculty of thought is the source and life force of the spoken word. Okay. Last class, I discussed the three garments, and um, I didn't just explain speech, I also explained thought. Does anyone remember what thought is? It's the soul knowledge revealed in your mind, and only in your mind. Right, so it's... Reveals something to itself. It reveals something to itself, right? That's why it's called the inner garment, because the soul is only in communication with itself. Okay. Now... What is it? Let's take one thing. What does it mean that the that the thought is the source of the speech? 
What do you think that means? You say what you're thinking. You say what you're thinking? Always? No, but you don't always say what you're thinking. No, way. Yeah. I mean, hope not, because one of the great things about thought is that you're the only one that knows what you're thinking. Do you imagine what life would be like? Remember what I said about speech just now, that how the status quo of speech is to not speak? That's what allows speech to be purposeful. Thought is the opposite. For reasons we're not going to go into right now, it's plain to say this, but, but it is clear thought is the opposite. What is the status quo of thought? Which means most thought is purposeful or not purposeful. So imagine your thoughts were available to others. Yeah, no, 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 we don't want, we do not want that to happen, right? What allows us to get along is that nobody knows what we're thinking. Now, you can make your thought purposeful, but it's actually much harder than making speech purposeful because it's not just you have to like relate to speech as the set, like you actually have to do something somewhat unnatural, which is take something which you, you, normally, you normally cannot help but do, and so is not purposeful, and kind of force it to be purposeful. Okay. Which is why most people... Um, I think what Connell was trying to say was that not all thoughts are speech, but all speech is from thought. Yeah, right, that is right. That's what you're saying. Right, right. So I want to, right. so I want to say, we say that thought is the source exactly. of... But this is going to be important that which way it goes. All speech... Is thoughts. Like, thoughts. But yeah. not all thoughts are speech. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Is that clear to everybody? Yeah. Can you say something if you've never thought about it before? No, because yeah. while you're yeah, saying it, it comes into your mind. What's that? But while you're saying it, it comes into your mind. It's not that you first thought, thought it. It's first, it's, but so, it's a thought right now. It comes from your thought. Yeah. It might not be revealed thought in your head, but it comes from it's, your thought. Yeah. Isn't that a whole idea? Even if it's not revealed to you. Leave chasmata. Leave chasmata. I want to. I want to just. I want to. I want to be clear about what I'm doing. I want us to everyone to, to actually like think about the phenomenon because this analogy, like this is just something we're supposed to actually understand about ourselves. And so I wanted to think about it because it's not so simple, right? We start saying things that we didn't think we planned to say and then we say them. We thought about them before we said them. But they are you didn't thoughts. double think it. Speech you you weren't so like, should thoughts. I say this? Okay, now Usually I'm going to say it. You, but it <laughs> is in your mind first. But, it could be not revealed thoughts. Yeah, but if it's not revealed thoughts, then it's not thoughts because we said what was that, thought. And not, in, other words, in other words, here's the thing. It's not the case. It's not the case that we're saying everything that comes out of your mouth at some point was, had to be part of inside you, right? Because thought is something very specific, right? Thought is you revealing things to yourself. So if I say something, right? And as I'm saying it, I become aware of what I'm saying. What came first, the speech or the thought? So then is it correct to say that, that spe- the source of that speech is thought? But does the text say that the source of speech is thought? Yeah. Yeah. So first off, it's for sure true that not all thoughts become speech. But it's not intuitively obvious even that all speech was originally thought. Right? This is the so-called Freudian slip, right? You said something you didn't mean to say. Like, yeah. And it reveals something about you, but it, but it bypasses thought, right? But it's like your thinking process was also missing. And it's not like, it's not like a thinking process is a perfect, like... Is a perfect flow of ideas or something. You cannot like say something that just comes automatically. Like you still have to have like neuro. 
Leave, leave your brain, leave your physical body out of it. It's very important because I want to explain why. why. Anytime you, you resort to a physical explanation of things, it's not going to carry over to the analog with God, right? So we want a purely psychological, conceptual understanding of things because that's the only thing to carry over when we move it talking about God. So leave your brain out of it. What are, but that's what thought essentially No, God, is not a, God does not have a bunch of neurons. Thought. thought is not. Thought is... Everything here, nothing here is referring to physical... I, I realize there is a physical component. And if you would like, in questions and answers, I will talk about that. But if you're learning Hasidus... Leave out physicalist descriptions of things as a general rule. Even when it talks about like something like throwing a rock, you still have to think of it more conceptually. Yeah. So thought is I know stuff or I feel stuff. And then I have a way of communicating that to myself, right? That's what thought is. Is it true so I have to first communicate it to myself and only then it comes out of my mouth? I mean, I'm, that's not true. I mean, <laughs> we say stuff all the time that we didn't think before we said. We, we become aware of it as we're saying it. And we're like, oh. You ever have that thing where you start saying something and you realize maybe you shouldn't have been saying it? Yeah. And you didn't even plan to say it? Okay, so how we can say that? The, how do you say that the source of speech is thought? Wait. So we're not saying that the source of speech is thought. But it says that. Okay. That's what the text says. I mean, you're allowed to say, I think the altar is wrong, but um, that's not going to help you understand the Tanya. I don't think it's wrong either, but we still have to understand it. You know, trusting him is not called learning. Trusting him is a prerequisite to learning. But speech is, is just kind of like a filter over your thoughts, right? Your thoughts are never ending. Your speech is not. I mean, yeah, it doesn't, you don't have to pay for it, but it's impossible to share every single thought. Yeah, but that, but, right. So one thing, one thing that clearly he doesn't mean is that every thought becomes speech. But now I want to do the reverse. Is it true that every speech was originally thought. Because if every speech wasn't thought, then you can't say that speech is, the source of speech is thought. But he says the source of speech is thought. Well, the source of... Speech. The source of what's called speech? Um, purposeful speech. Ah, so we could say purposeful speech. Hmm. Okay, that's a way around the problem. <laughs> that is a way around Maybe the problem. Maybe that's what he means. That is, that is a very good solution. It is not correct, but it is a very good solution. I'd like to spend time on why it is a good solution. Okay? Um, there are two ways of, of looking at things. One is to focus entirely on outcomes. The other is to look on process. If you get the process right, but occasionally get the outcome wrong, eventually you'll be very good at something. This is true about learning Torah as well. Okay? So let's see what just happened. We had... Um, a statement, right? That thought is the source of speech, right? And that's supposed to describe a reality that we are actually directly familiar with, right? So we examine that reality and it doesn't seem that the way we perceive that reality conforms with what the text says, right? So I trust that the author of the text is telling the truth, right? I also trust that my experience of that phenomenon is more or less accurate and they don't correspond with each other, right? So what am I supposed to do? So what did you do? You qualified what the text meant in such a way that it does fit, right? Yeah. By saying it's not referring to all speech, it's referring to only... Success. Yeah, but based per- on what we were talking about before, about how 
your thought is not always purposeful, but your speech, you were saying like to be quiet when it's not purposeful. Right. Right. So your thought's the source of that. Right. And let's do one other thing. You took other ideas that you had yeah. that seemed true and accurate and reasonable, and you use that to make a qualification that actually makes sense. Yeah. Now, that's proper learning. Now, it could be that the conclusion you reached is wrong. That could be not what the altar meant. In this case, it's not what the altar meant. But the process is correct. Right? I have a phenomenon which I have independent knowledge of. I have the statement of the text, which is true. They don't seem to fit together. If I qualify what the statement of the text meant based on some other thing which makes sense, well, then that could, in fact, be an explanation, right? That, that's what learning Torah is all the time, is, is it trying to figure out how to qualify one thing so that it fits with the other stuff. Okay? Now, I'm not going to give you the argument um, right now, and I might not give it at all, why that's not the correct answer, but what I will do is I will give you the correct answer, which is the mistake that we are making is not, is not that we didn't understand the statement properly. Is that when we're looking at the phenomena, we're not looking at the phenomena correctly. We are assuming, when we look at that, that the speech which is the source of the thought is the speech which is, in, which is the, sorry, the thought which is the source of the speech is the thought that is immediately prior to the speech. And the reason we do that is because we're wrapped up in this notion of our own consciousness, our own state of mind, our own intent. But if I take that issue out, I just say like this, is it possible for you to utter a string of words if you, those words were never part of, I'll, I'll use the you know, English teacher, those words were never part of your vocabulary. No. You can't utter words that you've never thought. Oh, it's talking about the specific words. Words, words, like literally the words that you say have to be part of your thoughts. What? But not part of your thoughts now. They could be part of your thought. If you did, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't. They could have been part of your thoughts when? At any point. At any point, right? Meaning that like a slip that you were saying of someone saying something probably came from something that they thought about whenever before that doesn't necessarily have to be what they're thinking in a second. Right. Right. Or let's do something else. You also, because human beings have this wonderful ability of habits, and habits are basically where certain things trigger certain things to happen. So, if you have thought about words in the past, and those words have a very fixed order in you, you've, right? Then you could actually utter a whole string of words without even consciously paying attention to it. But it had in a string of sentences, but all those words separately are in. That's right, thoughts. but right, but uh, this is what I misunderstood from you. If you were referring to words, then then you're right. I understood you were referring to the content, which is not the same thing. I'm speaking specifically about words. The way I'm thinking about it right now is like a song. <laughs> like uh, there's a lot of random songs that play, and like I immediately like start singing it without thinking about it, but I know it because I heard it 
And by the way, you might not even know what the song means. Right. Sometimes when you become an adult and you start singing the lyrics of songs, like, oh, that means something different than I thought it meant. Yeah. Right? Like lullabies. <laughs> right? Okay. So, but yeah, I mean, you can like literally just like turn on like a play button and like utter a string of words that because it's, because it's, because it, it has been part of your thought. And if it's been part of your thought in a way that, that has a, uh, like a habit loop with it. So one word leads to the next, right? You can just, yeah. Do you know what we call this phenomenon in Judaism? Davening. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. You sit down with the text, you start to fuse few words, and then you're like, your mind goes somewhere else, and like, you're like, the mouth's on autopilot. And, and all of a sudden you're done. And you're like, what happened? Oh, I'm finished. <laughs> because as long as the words are in your thought, they can be said. Right? And if the words are linked in kind of habitual cycle, then, then saying one word will just trigger the next one. Yeah. Okay. But you can't say words that aren't part of your vocabulary, words that have never entered your thought. Now, they could have entered your thought because you made up the word. We do that sometimes. Hmm. Or they could have entered your, word, your thought because you've heard them. Right? right? When a child comes home and says their first curse word, right, what do the parents ask? Where did you hear that, right? Now, it's clear that they didn't just utter the word. That word first entered the thought, and it didn't come enter the thought from themselves. It entered the thought through the ears, right? There's different avenues to get into thought. But if it never entered the realm of thought, if a particular word never entered the realm of thought, it cannot ever become speech. That's what that means. No word starts off being spoken. It always starts off being part of your thought. Okay. Notice I'm focusing here again on words and not on content, yeah? That was part of the issue is that we were thinking about thoughts and we're, we're thinking about the content of the thoughts. We're thinking about intent. With... No, no, Which is funny because what we were talking... What we were talking about before with the power of speech, we were also talking about words. We weren't right. talking about the content. Right. This notion of words, and as we move on the chapter, it's going to be very important that we keep track of words versus content. Okay. Um, I would like to elaborate on this idea a little bit. There is an argument in education and that we should focus on teaching people in a way that they find it engaging, they understand, they find it relevant. You familiar with this idea? Yes. Okay. I think it's a horrible idea. Okay. Okay. Shocking, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. He says shocking. Now, I often find myself on the opposite end of the argument because what happens like this? Let's say we have Hasidus, we're teaching Hasidus, right, Tanya, right? So what often happens when a person learns Hasidus is that you basically get a lot of words thrown around, if we're gonna be very honest. Because a person came to a Hasidus class, they didn't really know the Hasidus before the Hasidus class. What do they come out of the Hasidus class? Words. With a lot of words, right? It is very rare that you ask a person, okay, okay, what about your sense of God, your soul, Judaism, 
is like truly altered by what you learned in the past 45 minutes. Now, sometimes, I, there's certain basic things that like the first time person has maybe like, oh, the idea we have an essential connection with Hashem that never gets broken, or the idea that mitzvahs are really about connecting to Hashem, right? A few kind of like the real, real generalities. But once you get like whatever those things are, like after that, just more words, okay? And clearly in a class like, class like I teach, like I'm really trying to make sure that doesn't happen, right? You're actually understanding things, right? So I'm on the side, I'm actually doing the opposite side of the argument. But the reason is, who am I teaching? Uh, I'm teaching adults. Or youngest late teenagers. But let's say you're teaching eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, and 10-year-olds. What do they need? Words. They need words. Lots of words. Words make you feel smart. They need words, and they need those words grouped together. You know why? Because to make associations, right? So that as they become more mature and are capable of really understanding, they can file their understandings away clearly. You know what happens if a child does not, let's use the context of Torah, they do not know Mishnayis by heart. They do not know Mishnah by heart. They do not know the stories of the Chumash by heart. They do not know names of things by heart. They do not know the names of the months by heart. They do not know, know they just don't know stuff better. They don't have words. And those words aren't set up in orders with each other. You know what ends up happening? When you try to explain something deep and they try to understand something, what happens? They don't understand. They just keep getting confused. Things are chant. Now, is that the most exciting and engaging and interesting thing? No. But you don't. Now, some people, Hashem blessed them, and they have an ability that they can pick up the words very quickly. And some people not. But the truth is, let's say you're learning. So I'll, if you're learning, if, if you really want to learn, right? If you really want to learn, the first step of learning is to learn the words. What were the words? What did it say? Don't explain it to me. Don't tell me what your question is. What did the words say? Are the words imprinted in your thoughts? And if you want to, if you want to be really be familiar with something, then you need a lot of words about, that relate to all the different issues about that thing. But I told you the story about like how kids used to learn in Cheder. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound very nice, but you know what? Jews have been doing that for thousands of years and it worked. And Jews have been trying to like make you know, learning for children you know, eight, nine, and 10 interesting, fun, and engaging, and it's not working. Kids are not coming out knowing whole parts of the Torah. Well, how do you solve the problem in a modern age where a person doesn't feel the pressure to, okay, that's a separate issue. But like, if you really want to learn, step number one is the acquisition of words and the arrangement of those words. Step two is that those words take on meaning. Step three is you can then analyze, the, there's a way that works. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. This is, why, if, if, this is why a lot of people feel like they, you know, after a while it just sounds like the more of the same and more of the same, more of the same, more of the same. Because they're only getting very general things out of stuff because they don't have words. This is why every profession has its own vocabulary. Have you ever wondered that? Like every profession has its own vocabulary that outsiders do not know. Because if you have fine distinctions, if you have complex structures, you need in order to hold that clearly, words. And so the first step is just learning, learning, learning a vocabulary, learning what those words and how they fit together. 
without so much emphasis on whether you really, really understand them. That's, mo- that's what Judaism is supposed to be when you're, as a child. You know, if you ask, if you ask, you know, ask a child, okay, I go to a, a kid, let's say a Chabad kid, right? Say, okay, Elul, what is Elul? The month of Elul, the king is in the field. Who's the king? The king is Hashem. Now, do you think a five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten-year-old can explain to me what it means that Hashem is a king and that the king is in the field? This year. What? I only learned that this year. <laughs> <laughs> but now what do they know? El King of the Field, right? Rosh Hashanah, Shofar, Apples and Honey, J- Day of Judgment. They don't really... They, it's not so important that like they have... These, these things mean so much to them, but that they're all associated. Mm-hmm. Then you move on to like, you know, Psukim and Mishnai. I, I, within this, there's a lot of different levels of generation. But like this level of words as words and thought being a place where words are... Are enter us and are stored. And if the words are not in our thought, they will never enter in our speech. If the words are not in our thought, they are that we have no, we don't have them. We don't have access to them. I think it is. That's why I don't think it's a controversial thing. But I think I think it does mean though that when a person says this is boring, I don't find it interesting. And why should I know this? You have to somehow deal with that issue. But if you do it by trying to get them to be engaged with what's happening, then you you're shifting the focus to their experience of it rather than the a- acquisition of these words. Make sense? Okay. So now, let's take this. Why would it be that because the source of the words is the thought, therefore the words are nothing? Let's go back to what the Tanya. The Tanya says, because the source of the words is the thought, Therefore, the word that has been spoken is nothing compared to the thought. Because in its essence, it's like lost. Like, when something is, like, I don't know, like a drop of water. Like, no. It doesn't no. actually express what you're actually no. thinking. No, like, that's not. That, I mean, that, that idea does exist in Chassidus, but that's not what it says here at all. Speech, speech like I said earlier, is a filter. No. Thoughts are also internet. as my, like... What did I just spend 10 minutes explaining? That the words that come out of your mouth were originally where? In your thought. So why does that mean that the words that come in your mouth count for, out of your mouth count for nothing? Just that. Like you're starting introducing new ideas. What? It means nothing compared to your thoughts. Why? Because your, thoughts are your words are just sharing what is in your mind. What is in your thoughts, I mean. And therefore... And there's already existing in your thoughts. Why? Why? I, I, I want. Because it's not anything new. It's not anything new. It's not anything new. Okay? 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 <laughs> you, see what I, you see my point? <laughs> you just repeat the same words that were already said. What's the point, right? That made me really upset. <laughs> <laughs> but if you are looking at speech from the perspective of thought, what does speech sound like? Uh, like, I just said that. Why are you saying it again? It's so true. Oh, is that like thing? No, no, no. No? No. Okay. Like, literally from the perspective of speech, 
spoken words are utterly pointless because you are literally just saying what I already said. Right? You got annoyed when I, when I said what you thought that you had already said, right? So like, comes along stage, I'm going to say some words. And the thought is like, I already said them. They've been said. We have them. I have them already. We're done. We're good. We have the words. Who cares about someone else? Which faculty? Which faculty? Not your thought, for sure. Your faculty of? But not your faculty of? Thought. But that's why everybody's getting irritated by like these motivational talks and everything because everybody's saying the same thing over and over and over again. It's just a competitive emptiness, really. So, I think, and by the way, I, you want to get to a place where, where, where being silent is very natural for you? Become a thinking person. Because if you become a thinking person... It's like, why do I need to make, when I need to make it loud enough so that other, like, why? Again, you, you can enter that space. But the more a person's thoughts are thoughts, the more the words that, that, are, that are going on in here, they hear those words, like repeating those words out loud becomes like, like, what's the point? Unless I enter into that space where it's important for me that someone else should understand me. But absent that, which is entering that third garment, entering that second garment, that middle garment of speech, if the word's already been said, I have the original. Why do I need the copy? Yeah. Um, but that's not always true because sometimes you could like think something and it's not really a coherent thought. Mm. So like, when, and when you say it out loud, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, now mm-hmm. it makes sense in my mm-hmm. head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Correct. But also, I'm going to push you to come up with at least the beginnings so of how not, we're going to answer this question. So it's, but it's not something new, necessarily. No, I, I made the claim that, that when you spe- speak, at least from the perspective of thought, nothing new is being said, right? Right. Right? Again, once you enter the headspace of trying to communicate with someone else, that, that changes things, but we're not in that space. Right. And you're saying, well, it's not true. Sometimes my thoughts are incoherent, and then when I'm able to speak, I actually make them coherent. So I am gaining something from speaking. So thought does need speech. And so it's not nothing, right? And that seems pretty, you know, obviously true. And Siddha speaks about it. So how does what you're saying not contradict the explanation I gave? That's what I'm asking. And that's why I'm throwing back to you. In other words, I would like you to walk out of this room with a, more of a sense of how to deal with a problem than simply ask the teacher a question. How would we begin approaching that problem? Again, I don't care whether you come up with the right answer, but process. Let's think, how would... The words are, first off, the words aren't not new. Uh, that's true. Right, so, so, that is still so, so it doesn't change, right? If we, so, so let's process. What are we saying? If we focus on exactly the issue at hand, then we see the contradiction doesn't exist by being more precise. Right. Number one. Number two, and this is an idea that, that is discussed in Chassidus, there's things, many things have properties which um, are incidental to themselves. Let me explain to you what I mean. Um, let's use a, let's use a, um, if you were to speak, if you were to speak to a biologist and you were to ask them, why is it that, um, when you breathe very slowly and deeply, you calm yourself down? What would they say? There's something about, there's a nerve that actually comes in the back of, behind your chest. I think it's called the vagus nerve. And um, it controls, like, your attention. 
And now the question is like, okay, so it happens to be that that nerve gets a feedback from the lungs and then it happens to like calm down the nervous system. Notice how happens to? It's just like, like, I mean, it's a weird quirk of the body and that you can take advantage of that weird quirk, right? But it's essentially from the biology point, it's a weird quirk. Right? It doesn't have to, the body doesn't have to be structured that way. It does have to be structured. You need a pump of the, you need something to pump the blood. So you need a heart. Like that, that, that's like a necessary thing for it to have, right? You do need a nervous system, right? But you need that, that particular quirk. It, it happens to be there and we can take advantage of it. So Chazidah says that the same thing is true when we talk about you know, the spiritual side of reality as well there are interesting quirks that you could take advantage of. For reasons I'm not going to elaborate on right now, the importance of others understanding you goes very deep to the core of the soul. And therefore, there is a weird way in which the spoken word has some kind of deep connection to the core of the soul. And therefore, the other faculties of the soul are kind of drawn to the spoken word, not because of the word itself, but because because, the, because all the faculties of the soul have kind of this deep attachment to the soul. They want to kind of, if you want, they want to be get as deep within the soul as possible, and because others connecting to others is somehow deeply rooted in the soul, and words serve that purpose the other faculties kind of sense the essence and depth of the soul in the words, even though they're not actually, it's not actually there. And therefore they get triggered by the words. And that's what has happening there. Is that when you start speaking things out loud, your intellect gets triggered to be more engaged. But it's like a weird quirk. It's not like that's the purpose of speech. The purpose of speech is that other people could understand me. And there's really no reason why like, I should understand things more better because I'm putting it in words that other people can hear. Right. But because other people understanding me is something that is so deeply meaningful to the essence of the soul, the, the deeper sides of our psyche sense that connection in the words and they get very triggered and activated. It's like when you're engaged, you understand better. But that has nothing to do with, that has nothing to do with understanding the, the actual levels of you know, different faculty of speech and thought in of themselves. And it certainly has nothing to do with here where we're talking about the actual words rather than the coherence of our thoughts, which is, has to do with the content. And it doesn't contradict with all the other essentials. You're talking about an aspect of just what... Sorry, so two things. That is the source and the life force. Well, life force we haven't discussed yet. We've been discussing the source of the words. We're talking about the words themselves. So first off, it doesn't contradict. But second thing, even if we're talking about like coherence and understanding, it still wouldn't contradict because it's not the function of speech to do that. It's a weird quirk that speech triggers in other things. Now, once you become aware of that, you can then use your speech. It's like in, in medicine. There's many medications that were um, tested for certain things, and that's what they're that's what they're, they're that's what they're um, what's that's what they're officially supposed to be prescribed for. But if you do enough research, you discover that certain medications have other interesting, useful side effects. Mm-hmm. You know, so then they have what's called off-label uses. So the doctor's like, well, really, there's not been like, there's not been like, it's not officially certified the FDA for this, but like, we, we haven't done, we've enough research. It seems to be it also helps for this. So even though like, you know, you don't really need, you know, the anti-hallucination medication, but it turns out that it also helps people sleep when they're suffering from anxiety. So we'll give you a small dose, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, it's that kind of a thing. Right, got you. Okay. Incidentally, speech triggers other parts of the soul because of its depth, connection to the depth of the soul. If you're interested, the first two Hasidic discourses 
um, in of the year ninth of the year eighteen ninety nine. Tafresh known tests deal with this issue. Speaking of the first, and then elaborates what the corresponding thing. Rebbe Shab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe. I believe they've been translated into English. The first three discourses in that series. That's cool. Um, in the Chassid character series, so you can. Okay. Thanks so much. Fine. So that's the source, right? The words that you say are the have to have already been in thought. What does it mean, the life force? But it can't exist already But that's what meant the source. And he, he, the Al-Qarab and Tanya tends not to just be repetitive and be flowery. He, so these are two different ideas. One is the source and one is the... Okay. That's the idea of source. Oh. If you have no thought, if you don't have thought, you don't have speech. If you haven't thought words, you can't say those words. It also words. produces, like it triggers other like so life. Drives. Without the thought, there could be no speech. But that's what that was. What we said source was. Creates. Remember, I said it'd be important to know words. How many relationships does the faculty of thought have with speech in this chapter? Two. In English, those are source and life force. Those are two different things. Until now, we're discussing. Source. Now we're moving on to? Life force. So anything that went in the source explanation doesn't carry over to be the explanation of? Life force. You need to know the words. Words help us keep things clear and organized. Does it mean like it's the soul of the speech? Good. Now what am I going to ask you? you that? That's right. Because replacing one word with another word, if it doesn't actually create more understanding, is just, you know, just word games. Soul versus okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about what the idea of chayas, of life force is, as is understood in Chassidus, okay? Um, and I'm going to spend some time on this because this is a generally important thing, and then we will get back to what that means here, okay? The Pasuk says, the verse says, Love Hashem your God because He is your life. Good? I would like you to imagine the following scenario. God forbid, God forbid you are going to die unless you receive a particular medication. This medication must be administered on a regular basis, frequent intervals, every few minutes. This medication is exceptionally rare and only one person has that medication. And they are willing to provide you that medication on a dose-by-dose basis, conditional on the fact that you live the rest of your life in accordance with their whims and fancies. And they have such weird things as they have an obsession about what diet you eat, who you can marry, how you spend your free time, etc., etc., etc. Does the feeling that this generates within you towards that person love? Why? Yes. Because they're going to keep you alive. They're going to. So human beings, generally speaking, generally speaking, have feelings under the general categories of resentment and hate towards people or things that they feel have power over them. This is why it's a whole theme about how we hate the boss. Mm -hmm. Why do you hate the boss? Not because the boss is bad. Not because the boss is bad, not because the boss is nasty, because you know that if the boss fires you, you can't pay your bills. That's why. 
if, it kind of seems like blackmail a little bit. That, that's exactly yeah, that's the idea, right? It's your whole. We do not like having. We don't like having people and things having power over us. That's not. That's engender love. That engenders resentment. By the way, this is even true in a loving relationship, okay? If you emphasize to your children how much they can't get along without you, you're not, they're not going to love you more. Right? Parents do this all the time. A parent, we slip into this. It doesn't work. It doesn't create love. How much I care? Okay, that may be, you know. But how much you can't get along without me? That doesn't make people love me. The opposite. Exactly. So, you want to explain to me the Pasuk? You should love Hashem because He is your life. Without Him, you're going to die. So you should love Him. Because <laughs> that's basically what I described, right? No. That's a different... I'm specifically... This specific. Why is... What does that Pasuk mean? I should think about how without God, I'm going to die. And God is only going to keep me alive if I play by His rules. So now I love Him? I mean, I might be cowed by him. I might feel very, like, I have to surrender to him. I might feel subordinate to him, but I certainly don't love him, and I probably resent him. So what does this Pasuk mean? But is that what gets your nature? <laughs> love him anyway. Love him because it's a mitzvah. <laughs> no, like, it's perfect. Yeah, so like I said, you wouldn't naturally think that. Everyone see the problem? But is that what yes. the definition of life force is? No, that's exactly what I'm going to get to. Clearly, clearly, it doesn't mean keeping you alive so you're not dead. Yeah. Right. But it's like, try it without him, and then you're going to see the opposite. But it's the opposite. That, that, like, yeah, exactly. Birth, like, the person who gave birth yeah. to you, like, they were your life force, so you love them. Like, your path, like your mother. That's different. No, but I'm saying that Okay. <laughs> I, I, this is going to get me into so much trouble. Okay? That you don't automatically love your mother because she's created you? No. It, 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 <laughs> no. Children's love of their mother is very different than everything else. Children's love of their mother is because they have a hard time realizing or coming to terms with the fact that they are independent from their mother. A large part of the difficulty of a human psyche is the urge to not be a separate being from my mother and the need to be a separate being from my mother. Isn't that whole one, sec, one sec, one sec, one sec. Only mother, not father? Father is, plays out very differently. But it's very, I mean, this is like you see this all the time. Like kids, like really, like, like little kids, like they just want to be around their mother. They want their mother to be around. Like, 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 like somehow, like they're not whole without their mother, and yet a human being needs to be their own person, and like that creates a lot of tension in human psyche and blah blah. blah. And like you can like study, you know, human psychology and childhood development. And I mean, it also applies more generally, but it's it heavy. And, it, and you know, on a very basic level, it, it makes sense because every person started out as a piece of their mother, um, like quite literally. So it's, it, it, that's a very different idea. Um, that's not that they're life forces. That like, am, am I you or am I me? Um, Why is that Because life force is one thing that enlivens another thing. Like, not that we know what this is right now, the soul and the body. They're two different entities and one is enlivening the other. That's not really what's happening with them. Like, like, 
with the mother and the child is that the child starts out being the mother and then turns out not being the mother and like that, that that's complicated. It's more like sunlight on plant. Like it gives its energy. So, maybe, but I don't want to do that because it's too inanimate. I want something more. So here's the thing. If you only speak Hebrew, you actually have a problem. It's much harder. I, I teach this to Israelis also and it's much harder to explain this to Israelis. Um, but if you speak English, this is easier. We have words in English, such as thrive and flourish, which are distinct from words like, say, survive. Right? And when we say that a person wants to be alive, we don't simply mean that we want them to survive. We want them to thrive, thrive and flourish. In fact, right? Now, in other words, some people, they're just not dead yet. But they're not really living. Are you alive because you're alive or you're alive because you didn't get hit by a bus? Exactly. So now, when you're with Hashem, what happens? You're thriving. Like you're not thriving. You're thriving, you're flourishing, you're really living. And when you're not with Hashem, you're at best surviving. Now, let's think about this in real life. When you realize that when you're with certain people or engaged with certain activities, you're thriving. And when those things are not available, those people are held withheld from you, you are not really thriving, you're, you're at best surviving, what kind of emotion do you have towards them? Which one? Uh, the first one or the second? The first one, the, one, the people oh, that... I like them. You like them, you want to be around them, right? Yeah. You're drawn to them, right? right? Which, we, which we call, that's what love is. Love is the desire to be with, right? Ah, so what is the Pasuk saying? What is the Pasuk saying? That when you realize that when you're with Hashem, you're truly thriving, you're truly flourishing. Without Hashem, you're not thriving and flourishing. Then how will you feel about being with Hashem? It'll be important to you. And that's what it means to love someone is you want to be with them. That's what the Pasuk means. It's not like, you know, if Hashem pulls the plug, it's you're dead. Logical. No, it's selfish though. Of course it's selfish. Okay. Except for the fact that I don't like the word selfish. But of course it's selfish. Who says you can't be selfish? Where is that saying the Torah you can't be selfish? It doesn't say it anywhere. Who says, who says being bittel is not about being selfish? Do you know why it's important to be bittel? Do you know why it's important to be bittel? How else are you supposed to really be connected to Hashem if you're not bittel? Whatever bittel is. So, now the, 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 this is one of those things. This is one of those examples of, of, of like the danger of just having words. Like if you're just stuck with the words. Because like at some point they have to mean things. At some point, you really have to think, oh, does that make any sense, right? What do we mean by being alive? What, okay. But is that also like... If you're... So, so when, when Hasidus... Going back to our topic. When Hasidus speaks about Chayas, it's speaking about something more than just a technical matter. It's not energy. If you pull the plug and there's no electricity, the thing doesn't work anymore. Hashem is not the, the battery in the sky that keeps the Energizer Bunny going. No, he does that. There's a difference, right? I'm not the garbage man. I did take out the garbage this morning, okay? I am a father, I am a husband, I am a teacher. I am not a garbage man. I just took out the garbage. Not the same thing. But what is the intrinsic difference between like the source and life force? I didn't get there, I didn't get there. I didn't get there yet. This is gonna take time because I want, this, 
this notion of, of life force, of vitality, of chayat, is, is like central to Chasidus. Central. Oh. One of the Chabad Rebbeim, I think the, second, the, the sixth Chabad Rebbe once said, Chasidus is chayat. Chasidus is, Chasidus is life force. So the first thing to know is that by life, we don't mean a technical thing. We don't mean the thing that keeps you going. We mean something, something that, in the realm of thriving okay. and flourishing. Now let's go one step deeper. Okay? Is that what life force is? Or that's what? Oh, life, it's part of it, the picture. Let's go one step deeper, okay? A regular person, a regular person, if they're not thriving and flourishing and they never have an expectation that they will ever thrive or flourish? Do they have a will to keep surviving? No. That's just not how human beings are. Why is that? Because what's the point? In other words, whatever causes us to be thriving or flourishing is what gives us, gives our existence its value. If you take away the highest, the life force from something, it's not just, oh, now it doesn't get the experience of thriving and flourishing. It becomes worthless. Think about this in a very, very obvious sense, okay? A body without a soul setting aside the fact that we could harvest organs for medical purposes and setting aside the fact that there's a certain dignity we afford the body because it was the body of a person, but just in and of itself. What, what do we think about like a, a body that no longer has a soul? It's dead. And therefore? It's nothing. Like, like, what's, like what's the point of having that? Now, it reminds us of the person, then we see which, like, there's a certain level of respect, but like, so what causes a being to feel like they're thriving or flourishing is also the thing that gives them their meaning, their identity, their value. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go one step further. And by the way, I'm not going to, at the end of the day, give you a definition for life force. I'm going to be talking around it and around and around it to kind of paint a picture. And the reason is, can you actually give a definition for life force? Mm-mm. No, there's many things, or, or chais, there are many things that you can sense and you can describe, but you can't come up with a very good definition. Okay? Why is it not because it's not. Purpose is a, that which gives you life gives you purpose. That, that's what, that which enlivens you gives you purpose. In other words, in other words a feature or a quality of chayas is it makes your existence purposeful. It makes your existence valuable. It makes your existence meaningful. But it is not purpose because like this cup has a purpose. But I don't necessarily know the fact, the fact that I have a purpose for the cup that I want to drink from it automatically means that now the, the cup has a life force. That's also like kind of explains why we use the word chayas as like a good word, not just like a... Neutral. Term. Exactly. It's always used as a highly positive word. In Hasidus especially. Okay. One more thing. Um, and then we'll continue this tomorrow. One of the features of a physical body is 
that it needs it, it is inertia. Physical things have inertia, which means that if they're already moving, you need something else to stop them. And if they're not moving, you need something else to make them move. Simple enough? Mm-hmm. Okay. If you're alive, you seem to defy that. The physicists in the room will be quiet for right now. You seem to defy that, which means if you're sitting down, does something need to come and pull you to get you to move? If you are walking, does something need, you know, does something need to like get in your way to stop you? That's interesting. It seems that you can do it on your own, right? Okay. An extension of this is that, you know, um, of, of the similar ideas, this notion of entropy, which is basically that things just become more chaotic and break. So, for instance, if you have a room and you don't actively keep it clean, what happens over time? It gets, it gets messy and dirty, right? Well, have you ever noticed this weird phenomena that, like, if your bones break, they seem to put themselves back together? That's weird. The, one of the features of chayas, of life force, is that life force m- m- confers upon what it enlivens qualities and properties that it really should not have. As if we shouldn't be able to stand A physical thing shouldn't just be able to just move according itself around to, at will. According to like what we see in the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah. The only things think. that can do that are something with a life force. Right, right. In fact, that's what we tend to think. That's how do you fool people into thinking that there's living rocks if the rock seems to be moving on its own, right? right. If you could saw a video of a rock just moving around on its own, we think, wow. I mean... Either you're gullible enough to think the rock is the rock is alive, or you're like there's something weird phenomenon I don't understand, right? Like I don't know, like maybe there's like frost in the desert or something that melts and you know then the rock is sliding around, but it looks like it's moving on its own. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Um, when. So when, when there's life force in something, when something is receiving life force, it is becoming more than itself. Now that has a cost. What's the cost of being more than yourself? You die to another self, no? You, you what? Die to another self. Right. The, 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 if you're more than yourself, then what you were has to kind of like, shall we say, be... I don't think of a word, nullified a bit or negated slightly so that you could be this other thing. So for instance, if the body, physical body were insisting on only exhibiting properties of physical material, could it be enlivened? The, body, right, the physical body says, no, I will always have empathy. I will never heal myself. I will never move around over my own power. If the body were to insist on that, there wouldn't be space, there wouldn't be place for the soul to confer upon the body qualities that the body shouldn't have. Think about a student. If the student, in, you ever have a student ask a question? You guys are really good about this, by the way, but I have other students who are really bad about this. They ask a question, and they insist that they have a good question. And because they insist they have a good question, it's like such a good question, There's like no answer. there is no answer. Like, how do you get an answer? 
by realizing that your question, as good of a question it is, it's like not that good. It's not that good of a question. There is an answer. <laughs> like you, you can negate the significance of the problem you have discovered in your acceptance that there is some answer that would resolve it. And then what happens? Because you have that, like part of, part of getting an answer to a good question is not being overly impressed with the question. The question becomes a prison. You have to kind of negate to some degree the significance of the question to be open to the fact that there's some perspective in which that question goes away, where the answer gets resolved, where the problem disappears. Chayis goes together with the Hebrew word bitl. In order for something to be enlivened, it has to negate itself and then what? It gains the value and the qualities of the properties of something far greater than itself. It makes space for something. That's right, greater than itself. And, and so the things about it that are in tension with that have to go away. And now depending on what kind of chayas it is, what kind of life force we're talking about, that, that takes on different roles. I'm going to show this in like a very, very simple way, okay? Um, who are the people that really feel like they're thriving and flourishing, broadly speaking, in life? The people that work hard. What does it mean to work hard? It means doing the stuff that you don't feel like doing at the moment. Because when you're doing the stuff that you don't feel like you're doing at the moment, right, then the thing that you are is not being taken so seriously and that actually creates the space for something greater than yourself, which is what makes you feel like you're thriving and flourishing. Uh, which is, by the way, different than doing things you don't value. Those are, those are two different things. Mm. Right? There's there? things I don't enjoy doing in the moment and there's things that I don't value. Those are two different things. For instance, um, most normal people value having children and raising children. Most people do not enjoy the moment-to-moment experience of raising small children or dealing with teenagers. Not that there's no pleasant moments, but like the day-to-day, it's taxing. Okay. Learning. If you don't value knowing Torah, well then that's, again, that's the other thing. But if you value knowing Torah, does that mean you're going to enjoy the moment-to-moment experience of learning? The moment-to-moment experience of learning is like what we happens here, right? You read something, it doesn't make sense. You have to think about it, so it still doesn't make sense. <laughs> there's a lot of like, a lot of like hitting your head against the proverbial wall to try and figure out what the exit is. So you just like, have to like, not care that much that, it, that it's difficult and it's frustrating and it often you take 25 steps in the wrong direction before you discover the right direction. You just have to just not care that that's what it entails. And then what happens? There's space for something much greater and, that's, and people who are thriving. And the consequence of this is that you feel like your life is full. When a person has life, at the end of a day, it's not that they enjoyed every moment of it. They might have enjoyed a very few moments of it, but they felt like that was a day well lived. And they feel like they want another one of them. Conversely, when how you feel is what dictates what you do, the mood you're in, how comfortable it is, then what happens? There's any space for anything other than whatever you are at this moment. And so there can, there's no place for life. And therefore, you're never more than what you are. And therefore, there's an emptiness. And therefore, it feels like, what's the point after a while? 
This making I, I, I'm, okay. So we have to take this idea of what we mean by chayas and life, think about it a bit, and then try and figure out in what sense thought is life for a spoken word. So now I'm very happy you said that. I have this whole shtick when people say selfish, which I decided not to get into because I already got into too many tangents today, so I didn't get into it. That when people say selfish, they actually mean something differently than what, what, when they ask the question that you asked. As you mean selfish, they mean this kind of obsession with the self at the expense of anything other than myself. And it's the, at the expense of anything other than myself that has a negative quality to it. The notion that myself is the problem is not true. Like, obviously myself is important. If I, myself is important, then why should I care about what I care about? Why should I pursue anything? It's, the, it's when my relation, my, my, my sense of self is at the expense of others. Now, there's different ways of understanding, different levels of that, and Hasidus takes that to extreme and says, and ultimately it's the expense of yourself because what really causes you to thrive and flourish is be, having space for what's beyond you, right? Yeah, Exactly. Which means the ultimate, the ultimate best life to live would be a life where you are totally nullified to God. That'd be the greatest life ever. It'd be nice if God would like, you know, give us some way of trying to bring that about. Like, I don't know, it's like some Torah and mitzvahs. And... Oh, he did. That's that nice of him. All right. <laughs> we will continue this tomorrow. Thank you.